It's the Pete Callender Show. With more than 20 years as a reporter and radio host in North Carolina, Pete Callender is helping solve the world's problems one podcast at a time. Because he's a giver. And now, here's Pete. What's going on? Welcome to the show. Thanks so much for listening. I appreciate it. Thanks for subscribing. If you haven't already subscribed, please do so. Uh, go to the PeteCallenderShow.com, click the big fat subscribe button that's right there in blue, and then the podcast comes directly to your smartphone or tablet. Thank you also to the patrons who help make the show possible, like Nick, Catherine, Monica, Les, Mary, Eric, Peggy, Tavis, Kristen, Beth, and Al, and Eugene. Uh, I could not do the show without you, so thank you very much. They became patrons just by going to the PeteCallenderShow.com, clicking on the link that's at the top there, and takes you to the Patreon page. You get exclusive content. Tonight we're doing our live stream, so hope to see you there. Um, All righty, congressional Democrats are introducing legislation to expand the U.S. Supreme Court. They want to take it from nine seats to 13 seats in order to uh, control the court so they can uh, govern by fiat, by by judicial fiat. Well, I mean, they're not saying that, but that's what they want to do. There's no other reason to add four seats to the Supreme Court right now when they didn't do this before, right? When they had the majority on the court, they did not do this. Uh, They are interested in doing it now because the uh, conservatives and for the purposes of this discussion, I am, yes, lumping in Chief Justice John Roberts into that uh, into that group. But it's a 6-3 split. Okay, 5-4 if you move Roberts over to the liberal wing, which he has been sort of identifying with recently um, <laughs> in some of his opinions and rulings. The uh, This is the story from NBC News by Sahil Kapoor who says that the Democrats are joining progressive activists pushing to transform the court. Progressive activists. Can we just, I don't know, can we call y'all Marxists at this point? Is there really, like, can you just drop the, this, you know, the name change game where, like, every five years, ten years or so, you're like, okay, well, now we're liberals again. And, all right, and now we're progressives again. So, just... Sincerely, like if you just identify as Marxists, it just becomes very easy. Um, You don't have to worry about changing the names and everything else. But this is always the case. You notice like Republicans and conservatives, they don't ever really change their names. There's (laughs) they just it's I mean, that is part of the philosophy of conservatism. Right. So maybe that makes some bit of sense. They're like, we got our name. We're never we're never moving off of it. Whereas on the left, they're like, "Uh, let's try progressive. Let's try liberal. Um And the move intensifies a high-stakes ideological fight over the future of the court after President Donald Trump and Republicans appointed three conservative justices in four years. The monsters that they are filling seats on the judiciary. (laughs) Uh, I've talked about this before. There is a movement on the left to try, and in the media, but I repeat myself, to try to redefine what court packing is. And I mean, it really must be nice when you have the folks who write the dictionary working for you, which the left does, because the folks at the dictionary companies, they were like, oh, you want to make court packing mean something else now? Okay, we'll do that. Remember, they changed the definition of what court packing 
has always been known as. Court packing has always been known as trying to add seats to a judicial bench in order to affect litigation outcomes, right? And it got this, uh, this name came about, this term came about uh, in, you know, modern American vernacular when FDR attempted to do it, which I saw somebody make the point on this the other day that Joe Biden really is going for a total FDR kind of uh, uh, reincarnation. I mean, it's kind of impressive, don't you think? Sincerely, like he's got the internment camps going down at the border. He's got the court packing scheme getting pitched. Uh, there are questions about whether he's in control or whether his wife is at. Well, that's actually was that was Woodrow Wilson. So but then, well, FDR's wife was pretty powerful, too. Anyway, um, the, uh, the this idea that court packing now means something else was advanced by the left and, you know, just swallowed whole by the dictionary writers who I assume are of like mind on this, because court packing meant adding seats. But when the left needed court packing to mean filling vacancies, then it then it became filling vacancies, which is absurd because court packing has a negative connotation to it. Right. Just like packing and cracking in redistricting vernacular has a negative connotation. Right. When Whenever you're talking about packing a body with something, it's generally not like a human body, but when, if you're talking about packing a you know a, a governing body, there's a negative connotation. Hence, the term was applied when FDR attempted to do something which was you know unethical. He was trying to strong arm, and he did. He strong armed the Supreme Court. He threatened them. He said, "If you don't give me the rulings I want, I'm going to add people to the bench that will." And so the Supreme Court caved. And that's how we got all of the expansion of government programs that we've got now. I mean, this is an overly simplistic historical account, but that's that's the nature of what happened. This is the danger, by the way. This is the danger that you have. And also when FDR finally died, this is also why they limited all the presidents to two terms, because they were like, OK, let's not have that happen again. <laughs> um, the Democratic bill is led by Senator Ed Markey of Massachusetts and Representative Jerry Nadler of New York, the chair of the House Judiciary Committee. It is co-sponsored by Representative Hank Johnson of Georgia, who uh, you'll recall he is the one who was very afraid that Guam would tip over if we put too many people on the island, our military people, that it would it would cause the island to sink. Uh, as well as Mondaire Jones of New York. So those are the people running this bill. The Supreme Court can be expanded by an act of Congress, NBC reports, but the legislation is highly unlikely to become law in the near future, given Democrats' slim majorities, which include scores of lawmakers who are not on board with this idea. President Joe Biden has said he's, quote, not a fan of packing the court. However, it represents an undercurrent of progressive fury at Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell for denying a vote in 2016 to President Barack Obama's pick to fill a vacancy, citing the approaching election before confirming Trump nominee Amy Coney Barrett the week before the election last year. See, this is the false equivalency argument that the left always makes on this court packing uh, issue, which is in the Supreme Court nominations and approvals and stuff, um, is that the the Barrett appointment was different than the uh, the Merrick Garland appointment because the Senate was controlled by the Republican Party in both cases, 
But in the Garland appointment process, it was the president who was a Democrat. And in the Coney Barrett nomination, uh, it was a Republican president. See, so that matters because the president makes a uh, they, they nominate someone and then the Senate, you know, advises and consents. And the Senate was like, we're not going to consent. We're a different political party. We're going to let the people decide. I mean, you could say whatever the reason was. It was political machinations, but they don't have to agree. And so they don't have to consent. They can say, we'll take it up after the election. And by the way, that was a really risky play because uh, everyone assumed Hillary Clinton was going to win. And if she had won, then she would have been freed up to nominate an even more radical judge. That was the that that was the fear that it was a pretty big gamble. So McConnell just you know kicked the can down the road uh, because the president in the White House was of a different political party. But when Barrett was up for the nomination, as well you know like that it it was very end of the uh, right up against the election. But they went forward with it because they're all of the same party. That's the difference, and that's a pretty important distinction. Right? It's a political principle, but it is a principle nonetheless. But that's left out of the. Uh, the NBC story. I'm not sure why I'm terribly surprised. Uh, now, this should not surprise you that if you are trying to get a great mattress, you go to Mattress Man. That's not a surprise. Of course, you go to Mattress Man. And you can actually get a free upgrade at Mattress Man right now. You get a king for the price of a queen or pick up a queen size mattress for the price of a twin, which is, I mean, that's a pretty solid hookup right there, don't you think? Uh, everything right now seems like it's getting more expensive. Well, it is getting, I mean, food prices are going up. The gas prices, you see lumber is up at like a hundred dollars per sheet of plywood. It is nuts. So, uh, what Mattress Man is doing is a great deal, giving you more bed for your buck in these uncertain times. Uh, Mattress Man is the exclusive retailer of the Biltmore collection made by Restonic right here in North Carolina. Uh, you get free local five-star delivery service and a 120-day comfort guarantee. Now, don't worry, folks who live outside the area. You're like, I want a bed for Mattress Man. Uh, well, you can get one. Uh, they do ship nationwide, so you're in luck. And remember, take advantage of all of their flexible financing options. They've got a ton. Uh, you know, zero down, zero APR for 24 months, zero payments for 90 days. You can actually uh, get no interest for up to you know two years there. That's a great deal. Experience the difference at Mattress Man. Buy local and sleep better. The website, mattressmanstores.com. Oh, also, they've got four stores, Asheville, Hendersonville, and uh, the one in Arden, new location on Airport Road in the IHOP Shopping Center. Go check it out. I know I will when we uh, move down to that area in a couple of weeks. Uh, so mattressmanstores.com. As I said, buy local and sleep better. So this bill being run by Democrats in the Congress to uh, court pack the Supreme Court, uh, or pack the Supreme Court. Uh, the bill marks a new era when Democrats finally stop conceding the Supreme Court to Republicans, said Brian Fallon, a former Senate Democratic leadership aide and a co-founder of Demand Justice, who described the court as, quote, broken and in need of reform. And again, when you control the language like the left does, uh, reform means we control. Reform means we control. We have the power. Reform means we get what we want, right? Like, we don't like this system because you're doing too well and we're not in power. We don't have control. Uh, so we need reform so we can have control. Just like redistricting, right? Reform. 
We need reform, redistricting reform, which means we control the drawing of the maps. Um, Mitch McConnell said, quote, President Biden campaigned on a promise of lowering the temperature and uniting a divided nation. Um, He said if he really meant it, he would stop giving oxygen to a dangerous, antiquated idea and stand up to the partisans that are hawking it. Um, This is how Democrats rule, though. This is how they do it. They're ruling with a 50-50 split in the U.S. Senate. So it's a tie. They, right, the only reason that they uh, can win is because they've got the vice president to cast the tie-breaking vote on something like this. So it's a 50-50 split. It's a tie. But this is they're, they're acting like and governing like they've got a supermajority or something, like they've got the will of the people behind us. And they don't. It's a 50-50 split in the Senate. They only have a six-seat majority in the House. But this is how they this is how they govern. Um, now, a lot of people are looking at this and saying that uh, this has no chance to pass. This is just being run to placate the base. If this thing, I'm not so sure, by the way, I, I'm really not. I mean, there's a lot of people that are out there, you know, talking about how they would never agree to this sort of thing. But once the left cranks up its pressure machine on these elected officials, they're more vulnerable. A lot of these people are more vulnerable in the uh, in, you know, Democrat drawn districts in safe seats. They're they're more vulnerable there because uh, if you get enough of these left wing activists in your district, you can overthrow an incumbent who's, you know, quote, too moderate and not Marxist enough like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez did. Right. So they may, some of these people might actually be more susceptible to such a pressure campaign. So uh, I'm not so sure that people are uh, are going to you know break towards tradition here and towards preserving the court and towards you know not inflaming half the country because if you really want to you know hack off half of America, this is a great way to do it. I mean this this is the kind of thing because what 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 happens? You pack the court. Let's say you get this thing passed. Let's say it happens. You find some way, some you know, in the Senate, because that's really going to be the challenge. How do you find the the votes to get around the filibuster and all that? Um, if you you find the votes and you do it somehow, um, what happens with the first ruling that comes down on I don't know? Pick your favorite you know culture war topic that's being you know pushed through the courts by uh, by the left. And uh, it goes to the Supreme Court. That's now 13 members and all four of the new ones are all leftists. And so it goes, you know, the leftists way. What then happens? You have jurisdictions, states, counties, whatever areas of the country. They're just going to start ignoring these decisions because the Supreme Court will have no credibility. And then what does that look like? Right. You have a court that's supposed to, you know, interpret the law, make rulings on whether these things are constitutional in the framework, and you've just blown it up for partisan control. Do you think the other half of the country then believes that you guys are honest brokers in anything at that point? Why? And I put myself in this camp, by the way. I I wouldn't abide rulings from the Supreme Court at that point. Why would I? You've, you've changed the rules. You've you've you you're, you know you've made the decision to use the court as a tool to advance your ideology, which means it's not about the law anymore. It's about ideology, and so I'm out. I'm not playing your Calvin ball anymore. You play by your own rules, and I'm going to play by mine. I don't know what that looks like at a societal level, but neither do they. But they're willing to risk it. Apparently, I, I guess they think that like they really are under the impression that 
their views are the majority views or they think that the other half of the country is just going to take it. I, I'm not sure. I really am not. Um, meanwhile, Chuck Grassley, Senator Grassley, is asking the Department of Justice, hey, why hasn't anybody been charged yet with any crimes over all of those false allegations against Brett Kavanaugh? And Ed Morrissey at HotAir.com says, yeah, it's a good question, especially since this happened almost three years ago. You, re- you realize that? It's been almost three years. Will the Department of Justice enforce false statements laws consistently or only when special counsels are involved? That's a great question. So if a special counsel is involved or you got somebody, you know, investigating something going on and they lie, they make false statements, you're going to come down hard on them if they're Republican. Um But if it's somebody who's just, you know, trying to corrupt the nomination process of a Republican Supreme Court justice, then uh, no worries. You can just make up whatever you want. Think about the standard here, by the way. Thanks to Senate Democrats sandbagging in the Brett Kavanaugh confirmation process, a number of people came out of the woodwork to make clearly false allegations to the Senate as a way to derail his appointment to the Supreme Court. Grassley wants to know when they're going to face charges. And it's not the first time that Grassley has been asked, uh, has asked this question of the DOJ. Back in October of 2019, several colleagues, along with Grassley, wrote a letter to the Attorney General, Bill Barr, and uh, uh, the FBI Director, Ray, uh, requesting an update concerning their handling of criminal referrals that were made by the Senate Judiciary Committee. Here's from their letter, quote, to date, the Justice Department and FBI have failed to respond to our letter and have failed to apprise the committee whether and to what extent any steps have been taken to investigate and hold accountable those individuals who criminally interfered with the committee's investigation. Yeah, they were doing an investigation. That was the point of the hearing. Quote, these failures are entirely unacceptable. Are they, though? Are they unacceptable? Half of the country was totally fine with them. And really, if they're not acceptable, like, what are you going to do about it? Seriously, what are they going to do about it? You're like, you guys need to investigate this. Oh, yeah, okay, we'll investigate. It's unacceptable if you don't investigate. Unaccept. So what, you're not going to accept us not doing something? Under what penalty? He says, as my colleagues and I stressed in our previous letter, the committee's four criminal referrals dated September 29th, 2018, uh, then, well, um, he runs through a bunch of dates, right? So there are four of them. Those referrals highlighted serious cases in which individuals made materially false, fictitious, and fraudulent statements to committee investigators. In fact, two of the people that were referred have already admitted that they lied. And that should make it pretty easy to prosecute, don't you think? <laughs> They've already said, yeah, I totally made up that story about the boat and whatever. Like, Well, why aren't you charging them with this then? Grassley is correct, Ed Morrissey says. He is correct in demanding action. First, the Senate made these referrals, and the DOJ owes them an answer. Second, more importantly, the act of disrupting the confirmation process with deliberately false testimony needs to carry some cost. It has to. Prosecuting the trolls who took part in character assassination of a Supreme Court nominee would send a message to the rest of the trolls in the woodwork, right? This gets to an argument that is also made in election integrity 
uh, debate as well. I'll get to that in a minute. First, you need to get over to General Equipment Rental. Okay, they got great uh, savings, great deals going on right now on power equipment. They're your official licensed Husqvarna and Honda outdoor power equipment sales and service provider. Okay, they know about the deals from the manufacturer, but they're experts in Husqvarna and Honda products. Okay, so uh, if you got questions about, well, what's the difference between this model and that model, or this year and that year, they know the answers to those questions. Uh, go to the website generalrents.com. Uh, get information on the Husqvarna Demo Day as well. And uh, they've got all of the equipment to help you with your uh, spring yard maintenance. Uh, I'm looking forward to picking up some new tools once we get into the house. Um, you know, going to need, you know, the, the leaf blower, going to need some trimmer or a trimmer, uh, hedge clippers, lawnmower. So, yeah, I'm going to be <laughs> I'm going to be spending some time at uh, General Equipment Rental. You should, too. They're in Mer- uh, on Merriman Avenue at Reams Creek Road in Weaverville. They're at the intersection. They're family owned and operated for three generations. General Equipment Rental, generalrents.com and think outside your toolbox. All right, so Senator Grassley sends this letter to the DOJ and the FBI saying, yo, what's up? We sent you these referrals for four different people making false uh, statements, lying to the investigators in this confirmation process. Two of them already admitted that they lied. That should be easy to prosecute. Why aren't you doing anything? It's been almost three years, okay? And this needs to happen because if it doesn't happen, it sends the message that this is acceptable behavior. And it can continue. And maybe that is the point, by the way. Maybe that is the point for the inaction. Maybe they are sending the message and want to send the message that you can do this to Supreme Court nominees. I'm going to go out on a limb and just guess that it's only going to be acceptable for Republican nominees. But maybe, maybe Democrats will get some taste of of their own medicine on this. Uh, But this argument that you hear is, and this was the argument for uh, um, in defense of Christy Bla- uh, Christine Blasey Ford, right, the, the main uh, accuser against Kavanaugh. She is not, by the way, referred for uh, criminal investigation. Um, the argument in her, in her defense was that they would never fabricate such stories. She wouldn't make something like that. I mean, look at what she's risking, Right. The punishment that would be involved if she were just making up these stories. I mean, even though everybody that she listed as a witness all said, no, that never happened. Um, that d- d- doesn't matter, right? The possibility of being charged with some sort of felony for, you know, lying to Congress or something. Nobody would ever risk such a penalty. But if there's no penalty, there's no risk. And if there's no risk, it's open season. This is the same argument in election fraud and election integrity arguments, right? You hear it all the time. Nobody would risk voting uh, in in place of somebody else. Nobody would risk the kind of, uh, you know, uh, legal ramifications uh, involved with being caught committing election fraud. Nobody would do that. Think of the risks. Think of the penalties. Okay, well, let's think of the penalties. If if you're not going to get caught because it's so hard to detect and nobody's you know, put in place the measures to catch you, um, where's the risk? And then if you do get caught, in North Carolina at least, what what's the potential penalty? Uh, it's a class H pen, uh, felony, I believe. Uh, and as our friend Jay Delancey from the Voter Integrity Project always would compare it to the law uh, against stealing straw, pine straw. It's actually 
more uh, it's more severe penalty for stealing pine straw than for committing election fraud. Do you think that that has an impact when when you're contemplating from the mind of the criminal here? If you're trying to uh, conjure a way to, uh, you know, to commit election fraud, you take into account certain things, right? The first thing you do is how easy is it to do? Right. Like that's the first just pragmatically. Is this an easy thing to do? And in North Carolina, as it is in most states, yes, it is. It's quite easy, as a matter of fact. You can go onto the website. I'm not going to go in detail how to exactly do it, but you can find all the information you need on the Board of Elections website to vote in place of somebody. When there's no voter ID, you can do that. It's very simple to do. You can ask for ballots and such. You can, quote, help people vote. And uh, you can influence elections that way. As long as, um, you know, as long as you're willing to take the risk to do it, then it is pretty easy to do. All right, so that's the first question. Is it easy to do? Okay, next up, uh, what's the risk? All right, is it a risky thing to do? Is it likely that you're going to get caught? And the answer is no. It's actually not likely you're going to get caught. Uh, and then if you do get caught, what's the penalty? It's pretty low. Okay, so pretty low penalty, pretty low risk, uh, pretty easy to do. So far, there's really no barriers to do it except a willingness to do it. And then you get to the last uh, question, which is, uh, what's the benefit to you? Ah, is the juice worth the squeeze? Now, if you are able to commit some level of fraud to get your friend into a position of government power, is that of benefit to you? I would submit it most certainly is. So all of the decision points, the factors here, right, they all tip in one direction. And as the, uh, was it the elections director up in Suffolk County, New York on Long Island, uh, when uh, he was uh, confronted or presented with information about a North Carolina candidate for office having voted up there and down here back in like 2008, voted in person in New York and in North Carolina, um, how could that have happened? And what he said was, it's largely based on an honor system. So when people move, it's based on an honor system. Okay. What if people don't have honor? Now, you don't want to go on an honor system when you're buying or selling a home, right? Because that's a massive purchase, which is why you need somebody in your corner that knows what they're doing is going to protect you. Rowena Patton and her all-star powerhouse team, uh, they're the only agents that I uh, called when Christy and I went to buy our house. Uh, I recommend them to you. Buying or selling, same number, 333-4483. Mountainhomehunt.com is the website. Uh, and she outsells 99% of the realtors in the entire state. If you're buying, she has homes in all price points. If you're selling, she has buyers already lined up. So give her a call, 333-4483, and then start packing. Right, so the voter ID law in North Carolina, right, it's on trial this week. A uh, cornerstone of the case made by the plaintiffs, as I went over the other day when I uh, uh, covered the trial, the, one of the main uh, uh, points, the key points here, is that the voter ID requirement uh, is tainted as racist because it disproportionately impacts African-Americans. Brian Balfour, writing for the John Locke Foundation at uh, johnlocke.org, uh, quotes Allison Riggs, who is the lawyer from the Southern Coalition for Social Justice, the lawyer representing the voters who have sued. And she made this argument that black voters may be able to jump through additional hurdles, which is you jump over the hurdles 
you jump through hoops. Anyway, she says you uh, they may be able to jump through additional hurdles to be able to get an ID or to have a provisional ballot that is counted, but that doesn't negate the disparate impact. Disparate impact. Okay, what does that mean? Well, you got to go to Supreme Court precedent, their previous rulings. This is the Arlington Heights case, the Arlington Heights neighborhood. It's a suburb in Chicago and... Uh, it was a rezoning case from like 1977, and um, they were the they they uh, there was like the housing authority was trying to put a bunch of um, townhomes or something in there. Anyway, this case uh, has set the standard now for this disparate impact uh, standard. So what they found, what the ruling was, was that proof of a racially discriminatory intent or purpose is required to show a violation of the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment. Okay, so if you're trying to prove that somebody or entity violated your equal protection rights under the 14th Amendment, you need proof of a racially discriminatory intent or purpose. Okay, makes sense, right? You, your rights are violated because that guy's a racist, and you, got, you need to, though, prove that it was a racially discriminatory intent or purpose. All right, so how do you do that? Official action, here's what the ruling also said, official action will not be held unconstitutional solely because it results in a racially disproportionate impact. Okay, so it can't just be, hey, look at these results and um, the results are different and so by race uh, and so therefore that's racism. A racially discriminatory intent as evidenced by such factors as disproportionate impact the historical background of the challenged decision, the specific antecedent events, departures from normal procedures, and contemporary statements of the decision makers must be shown. Okay, so those are the those are the standards that you have to hit. Okay, the historical background. And that's why there was all this you know discussion uh, in the trial about the previous voter ID laws and the you know hundred years of Jim Crow voting laws that Democrats put in place to keep black people from voting. Right. So that's why they went over all of that historical background. Um, the specific antecedent events, like what happened right before this occurred, uh, this uh, law was implemented. Um, departures from normal procedures. I'm not sure they're going to get anywhere with that. There isn't really a departure from normal procedures there. Uh, and contemporary statements of the decision makers. I don't think they're going to find any, you know, quote, smoking gun of statements there. But the other factor is disproportionate impact. That's the key here. So disparate, disproportionate impact. Looking at the results saying, well, if, you know, black people are not voting in the rates that white people are, that then is de facto proof of a disparate impact of the law. Okay, it is a standard, though, that insists statistical differences in outcomes is proof positive of discriminatory intent, even in the absence of any evidence of actual discriminatory intent. This is, again, Brian Balfour. Such a standard emboldened the lawyer for the plaintiffs here, Allison Riggs, uh, to declare that the voter ID law in North Carolina was, quote, designed to keep black voters from the ballot box. The disparate impact standard, however, is a complete sham, he says. And then he quotes Thomas Sowell, who says, blacks are far more statistically overrepresented among basketball stars in the NBA. Hispanics are similarly more overrepresented among baseball stars in the general than in the general population. Asian Americans are likewise far more overrepresented among students at leading engineering schools like MIT and Caltech than in the population as a whole. Does that mean 
that there is racism occurring there? Statistical disparities exist in every aspect of life. They're the norm. They're not the exception. And they fail to prove any discriminatory intent. Brian Balfour, again from the John Locke Foundation, says if leftists like Riggs insist that disparate impact is the de facto irrefutable evidence of racist intent, why do they support increases in the minimum wage? What a great question. Research has long established that the minimum wage increases disproportionately impact black workers, right? Especially young black males. When you start raising the minimum wage, young black males are harmed by it. They get fired first. They have a harder time getting jobs. So how can woke progressives support a law that, according to their own standard, has to be racist? Well, I think the answer there is that simply asking the question makes you a racist. I think that's the standard. Um, Here's the standard at Old Grouch's military surplus. Real U.S. military surplus at great prices. Uh, Go on into the shop. He is open Monday through Saturday in downtown Clyde on Main Street. Old Grouch's military surplus uh, has been for 30 years plus now. Uh, The store is across the street from the anti-aircraft gun. Pick yourself up first aid kits, ammo cans, gun accessories. Um, he's got clothing for you know the, uh, for going outdoors and adventuring and stuff. Go check him out or go check out his website, oldgrouch.com. Old Grouch is real U.S. military surplus, downtown Clyde, and at oldgrouch.com. Now, another uh, component in the, I would submit, dishonest approach to debate uh, around the voter ID and all election integrity law is what the New York Times has done. The New York Times used to have a pretty well-developed consensus uh, around Uh, the weakest part of the election system in America, which is the absentee balloting, okay? Uh, And this is documented by Eric Felton at Real Clear Investigations. By making accusations of vote fraud, though, that he was not able to prove uh, both before and after the election, President Donald Trump made it very easy for his critics to dismiss as a lie any and all concerns about election integrity, right? The New York Times, Washington Post, other times, like all of the media, you know, like Twitter and Facebook, like you start talking about election fraud and they start slapping, you know, warning labels all over your stuff. Uh, they'll take you down, like they'll like deplatform you if you start saying, you know, election was rigged or stolen or anything like that. Um, but here's the thing. The New York Times used to believe that absentee ballots and mail-in ballots, they used to believe that was the weakest part of our system. The New York Times uh, has aggressively insisted for the last few months that worries over absentee ballots and mail-in ballots in particular are now dishonest violations of voting rights. They've done a 180 on this, right? The Times, for over two decades, has warned readers that the most common sort of election fraud involves absentee voting. I remember this. I'm old enough to remember this, and not even from the New York Times. I was arguing with Democrats and lefties uh, on Twitter over the last, uh, what, eight years ago when the original voter ID bill was run. They were, ye- they were yelling at me, like, if Republicans really care about election integrity, they would attack the absentee ballot process. They would reform that, not voter ID. That's, see, that's the thing. All of the arguments against absentee by mail voting in North Carolina and everywhere, right, all of the arguments against mail-in voting from the left they were all simply in service to supporting no voter ID, 
right? That's it. So when anybody came along and said, hey, I want to do voter ID, the left would say, we don't need voter ID. In-person fraud never happens. If you really want to do something about election fraud, you should look at the mail-in voting. It was a deflection tactic. Because then when they started doing more mail-in voting, now the left is like, this is the best thing ever. There's no fraud whatsoever that occurs over here. But there's a record. And that's what Eric Felton has gone back and pulled. As recently as September, Times reporters Stephanie Saul and Reed Epstein quoted Richard Hassan, who teaches election law at the University of California, Irvine. Uh, and Hassan said, quote, election fraud in the United States is very rare, but the most common type of such fraud in the U.S. involves absentee ballots. In 2018, operatives working for the Republican candidate for North Carolina's 9th congressional seat falsified absentee ballots. Times reporters Alan Blinder and Michael Wines told readers that the state's long history of election fraud was, quote, under a spotlight. They quoted lawyer Bill Gilkison saying that absentee ballots were where the fraud really happens. In 2019, a year later, Blinder wrote, quote, the ninth district controversy ranks among the highest profile examples of modern election fraud and one that, quote, underscores how absentee ballots remain susceptible to abuse. See, this is why people in North Carolina who are paying attention to this story three years ago, like all of this stuff that we've been seeing about, you know, must protect the ballots. You know, you guys can't attack absentee balloting, must protect them from any criticism. It doesn't ring true because the same people who are now saying we're not allowed to say that this is susceptible to fraud, they were the ones saying it. They were the ones saying it because there was an absentee ballot uh, mill being run in Bladen County. What accounts for the change from a dark presentation of the issue to a decidedly rosy one? Real Clear Investigations asked a spokesperson for the New York Times whether the paper's current enthusiasm for absentee voting meant that its staff's previous criticism and reporting were wrong or misleading, as they would be, right? Real Clear Investigation also asked whether the articles had been, even just unintentionally, part of what Times staff editor Bocott Lindell called, quote, a decades-long disinformation campaign by the Republican Party and others to suppress votes. Uh, they, uh, the spokesperson for the Times uh, did not respond to those two questions. Shockingly enough, <laughs> they did not respond. Well, of course they won't. Right? You're now, your, your paper is now arguing that any kind of questioning about absentee ballots is part of some disinformation campaign by the Republican Party. Yet y'all were the ones making this argument for the better part of 20 years, uh, which then uh, Felton goes through and actually documents <laughs> all of the or a lot of the occurrences. Um, uh, there was one term I had not heard this before, but I love the term. So I'm bringing it to you. Granny farming. Granny farming. We learned from the New York Times that campaign operatives helped voters in nursing homes. Such voters can be subjected to subtle pressure, outright intimidation, or fraud. The secrecy of their voting is easily compromised and their ballots can be intercepted both coming and going. The links to this article, by the way, uh, are up at the Patreon page where I post all of the show prep. You can become a patron, remember, by going to thepetecalendarshow.com. Uh, the New York Times now insists, uh, through its designated arbiter of verified facts, that absentee voting is the gold standard. So what changed? Did journalism change? 
or maybe what changed was who's benefiting from making the allegation and who's benefiting uh, benefiting uh, from being accused or who's not benefiting from being accused right this this pro mail-in ballot argument is all in service to an anti-voter id argument uh, speaking of elections, Lieutenant Governor Mark Robinson seriously considering a run for U.S. Senate. This is according to sources telling Dallas Woodhouse, former GOP executive director of the North Carolina uh, Party, uh, writing at Carolina Journal, where he works now. Lieutenant Governor Mark Robinson, a Republican, is thinking seriously about a run for U.S. Senate in 2022 and plans to announce his decision within days. Multiple sources tell Carolina Journal. Always keep in mind this could have been planted in order to damage Mark Robinson because people, voters, they generally uh, don't appreciate electing somebody to an office only for that person to turn around and seek another office, right? Yeah, because it looks, right, it looks like you're just trying to climb the ladder. Now you become, uh, you know, some ambitious politician rather than what I think Robinson was, which was, you know, a guy who went down to the city council, made a really great speech uh, against, you know, their proposed gun laws. And uh, the video went viral. He parlayed it into an election. And now he's lieutenant governor. But apparently, uh, Carolina Journal obtained a copy of polling questions for a survey apparently commissioned by people close to Robinson. Again, does that mean that Robinson did it? Or is it some of his advisors who were like, hey, let's check this out. Let's see, like, does he have a shot at going to the U.S. Senate? I don't know. I think somebody you know is going to ask him pretty soon, as they should. Uh, one question asks whether voters would be more or less likely to vote for him so soon into his term, right? That is now that makes me believe that it's a legit story because um, that is the question you should be asking, right? <laughs> because if people are going to hold it against you for running for another office so soon, you want to know that before you go any further whatsoever, right? Speaking of going any further, uh, maybe you are dealing with some pain uh, that uh, just prevents you from going any further on your walks, on your exercise regimen. Maybe it's about trying to get a good night's sleep and you, you wake up after like three or four hours and this happens every single night and you need a good night's sleep. Well, have you tried CBD, right? Growers Hemp. Growers Hemp Full Spectrum Hemp Extract. Growers Hemp is North Carolina-based, North Carolina farmers, and they set up their own company. They said, we're growing the crop. Why don't we control the whole process? What they call vertically integrated. Um, farming is, you know, is very advanced. I'm not kidding. It's very advanced nowadays. So uh, you, you have the farmers. They grow the, the crop, the hemp crop, and uh, it is not marijuana. It's hemp. And so you grow the hemp, and then you turn that into the CBD through the manufacturing, and then you retail it. And it's North Carolina-based, and so you're helping North Carolina farmers. And, you know, you, what are you looking for the CBD to do? Get a better night's sleep? Lower tension, immune system resilience, add Growers Hemp Full Spectrum Hemp Extract to your daily routine. They also have a topical, a salve, a balm, if you will. It's the balm. And uh, you apply it, you know, topically onto, you know, your knuckles or, you know, bum, hip or shoulder or elbow, whatever the case might be. As with all CBD products, here's the official disclaimer. Got to read it. 
These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. The efficacy of these products has not been confirmed by FDA-approved research. These products are not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease, and nothing I've said is meant as a substitute for or alternative to information from your healthcare provider. Please consult your healthcare professional about potential interactions or other possible complications before using any product. Go to the website growershemp.com, use my name Pete, and you'll get 20% off. Promo code Pete at growershemp.com. From North Carolina farmers to your home, Growers Hemp is about the hemp and not the hype. So here's a crazy story out of Alamance County. A Union County charter school teacher and coach uh, was killed in a shootout with a drug cartel in Alamance County. Sheriff's deputies arrived on the scene, found two people shot inside of a trailer in this mobile park, uh, home, mobile home park, rather. And um, they found one person inside pronounced dead at the scene, Barney Dale Harris. They also found outside fellow by the name of Alonzo Beltran Lara, who was taken to the hospital, but he later died from his injuries. Okay. Barney Harris was the teacher and coach at Union Union Academy Charter School. The school provided a statement after news broke of the incident, saying, you know, they're very uh, uh, saddened to hear and all this other stuff. They they had to take the statement down when they learned what this teacher-coach was doing. He was there to rob the cartel. This is like breaking badly right here. Okay? The sheriff says, Lara... Alonzo Beltran Lara, the guy who died at the hospital, he was believed to be a drug runner for the Sinaloa New Generation Cartel, and that the trailer was believed to be the stash house. Investigators believe that Harris and a team of people went to this home to steal drugs and money, and at some point, deputies say there was a shootout that led to the deaths of Harris and Lara. During the course of the investigation, The sheriff's office seized over a kilo of suspected cocaine, five guns, and about $7,000 in cash. Two vehicles that were involved in this incident uh, were found later. One was in Guilford County and one was in Alamance County. That's according to the WBTV story. The News and Observer uh, describes Harris as uh, 40 years old. He taught Spanish. He was head of the boys' varsity basketball and track teams at Union Academy Charter School in Monroe, Union County. This uh, shootout occurred April 8th. Alamance County is east of Greensboro along I-85 and I-40. It's about 55 miles west of Raleigh, about 115 miles away from Charlotte. And apparently, I-85 and I-40 are a major drug running uh or they are major drug running routes all right and uh the sheriff says that alamance county has become a very convenient place for these drug operators to do their uh to do their drops right swap out the money for the uh for the drugs and such uh harris the teacher was shot numerous times in what the sheriff described as quote an old western shootout between two criminal enterprises. One of the enterprises was obviously the Sinaloa cartel, the other being Harris and his brother-in-law. Officers found Harris dead in the bedroom, wearing a face cover, gloves, and a bulletproof vest. His brother-in-law, Stephen Alexander Stewart Jr. of Wadesboro, has been arrested because apparently 
when Alonzo Beltran Lara arrived, he was taken outside, tied up, and shot execution style twice in the head. And he survived at least long enough to get to the hospital. That's crazy to me. Shot twice in the... This is why when people, whenever you're in the gun debate with people, and they're like, why does anybody need, you know, this many rounds? Why does anybody need this kind of a gun or a caliber, right? When, when they start asking these questions, these are the stories that I think of. That here you have a guy who was, who was murdered, right? But he survived for, I don't know how long, half an hour, an hour, after being shot twice in the head, execution style. That's why you need, because now think, you know, play this out in your mind as someone breaks into your home and, you know, you've got some, you know, gun with a reduced capacity, you know, uh, not very powerful, right? You're, you're, you can pump a whole bunch of rounds into that person and it might not kill them. It might just make them mad in some cases, if they're, especially in like the wintertime, you're shooting at somebody with a puffy jacket with like a 22, like that, yeah, I mean, you're just going to make them mad at that point, right? So that's that's one of the, and there's also, there was another story I remember watching a long time ago, it was uh, one of those true crime stories, Christy loves watching those TV shows, and um, so sometimes I catch parts of them, and there was this one story we saw where this uh, family, or this guy had been robbed at his house, and then they put him up against the wall and shot him in the back of his head, and then they robbed the house and, and left. Meanwhile, the guy flees the house because he doesn't die the bullet hits the skull and travels along the skull and then exits out the top of his head it like it bounced off of his skull basically and that was at point blank range so again i don't remember what kind of caliber it was but it was you know obviously a small caliber those are the stories that like i kind of think of when we get into these uh gun control debates now the sheriff also points out uh, oh, the sorry, the brother-in-law, he's now been charged with first-degree burglary and first-degree murder. Um, the sheriff says that the cartel members may seek vengeance now for this guy's death. Uh, quote, to this day, as sheriff, I'll tell you right now, I'm still worried about some retaliation because the Mexican cartels, they don't forget they're going to pay back somebody. And that concerns me greatly as sheriff of this county. So uh, that's going on in Alamance County. Meanwhile, the Pentagon has admitted that a U.S. Navy destroyer captured night vision footage of mysterious flashing objects flying above it and another warship. The, uh, you know, that green grainy video from, you know, night vision. uh, It was gathered by the Unidentified Aerial Phenomena Task Force, or UAP. I guess they're they're trying to move away from the UFO uh, designation. So the Unidentified Aerial Phenomena Task Force. It got leaked to a filmmaker named Jeremy Corbel, who made the documentary about Area 51 and flying saucers. Uh, it also was sent to KLAS-TV news director George Knapp. According to The Sun uh, newspaper, uh, Corbel and, he, uh, and the uh, news director at KLAS verified the startling video's authenticity after gaining information from an intelligence briefing from the Pentagon, where officials confirmed that the footage was in fact shot by the Navy, but did not describe the contents. So in the clip, I don't know, have you seen this clip? In it, uh, that's recorded by personnel aboard the USS Russell, three faint orbs are seen hovering above the warship. A triangular object also is seen in the footage. 
Corbel also shared three images captured by the USS Omaha of an unidentified spherical craft. And according to this New York Post article, Corbel said, quote, It is noted that the spherical craft was suspected to be a transmedium vehicle and was observed descending into the water without destruction. So this thing is moving super fast at crazy angles and stuff. Start, stop, whatever. And then it just plunges into the ocean without you know, being destroyed. Um, the incidents were discussed May, t- uh, May 1st, 2020, during a classified briefing conducted by the Office of Naval Intelligence about the unidentified craft. Uh, the Pentagon has a spokeswoman named Susan Gow or Golf. Anyway, she told the Sun, quote, I can confirm that the referenced photos and videos were taken by Navy personnel, and the UAP task force has included these incidents in their ongoing examinations uh, to maintain operations security and to avoid disclosing information that may be useful to potential adversaries. The DOD does not discuss publicly the details of either the observations or the examinations of reported incursions into our training ranges and designated airspace. So they're not saying nothing, right? We're not going to tell you anything. that we're like, we're, We don't know what that is. Like, here's the video. Oh, can you give us any information? Nope, nothing. This is it. Observed on this day, this time, uh, from people on this craft. That's it. Last month, newly released details from the logs of the warships USS Kidd, USS Rafael Peralta, and USS John Finn over several days in July of 2019, also revealed flying objects buzzing them off the coast of California. That incident uh, reportedly prompted an investigation by the Navy, the Coast Guard, and the FBI, but they all failed to come up with an answer. Now, remember, a couple of weeks ago, the former uh, Director of National Intelligence, John Ratcliffe, Um, He said government officials have recorded more identified flying objects that are difficult to explain. uh, And the second stimulus bill, COVID stimulus bill, um, that was signed into law by Trump last December, it actually had a provision in there forcing the U.S. spy agencies and the Pentagon to disclose what they know about UFOs and uh, to give it to the Senate Intelligence and Armed Services Committee within 180 days which I think this is brilliant, actually, because when the government denied that UFOs existed, people believed in UFOs. Now, if the government tells us, hey, we got all this footage, it's obvious these things exist, I suspect everyone's going to now say, oh, they're lying about that. They don't really exist. It's a brilliant strategy, really, if you think about it. Think about subscribing to the podcast. I appreciate that. Go to thepetecalendarshow.com. That is a wrap for this episode. Thank you very much uh, for uh, subscribing, for downloading, and for listening. Uh, We'll catch you later. Don't break anything while I'm gone.